We are at tonight, the Messiah hated without a cause. This is also a psalm of David. <clears throat> Somebody says, well, what psalm, uh, who wrote this particular psalm? A great guess would be David. You'd have a 50% chance of being right. Uh, as far as we know, he wrote at least uh, 75 of the 150 psalms. So um, this is yet another one of those. And this particular psalm, Psalm 35, has been classified under different headings, such as a lament psalm, an imprecatory psalm, or a messianic psalm. Now, a messianic psalm is one that prophetically connects with the coming Messiah in terms of uh, with the proof being seen in the uh, New Testament. New Testament revelation uh, confirms this is indeed a messianic prophecy. Now, many of the psalms labeled messianic contain only really a nugget of prophetic truth, and that is certainly true of Psalm 35 as well. In fact, we would really not know this is a messianic psalm in that it connects prophetically with the Messiah, except that we have a direct connection stated in John, in the Gospel of John. It connects verse 19 to the Messiah. And so that's what we're going to ultimately build towards here. Now, God revealed prophetic truth about the Messiah a little at a time. I mean, just didn't give the whole thing at once. It came out a little at a time. It's sort of like connect the dots in the sense that you really can't make it out clearly until you have the dots all connected in the New Testament. And you'll see, you see on the overhead there, right? You can maybe kind of make this out. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Uh, what, what, what does this diagram portray? Well, until you connect the dots, it's kind of hard to say for sure. Uh, and Messianic prophecy was like this, right? It's kind of like in the Old Testament, we see, we see kind of darkly. Uh, we see kind of dimly, as in a glass. And that's kind of the way the Old Testament is. But once God connects the dots for us through further New Testament revelation... We see that it all lines up perfect and makes truth come to light. So there, here we go. Oh, did you see it? It's fast. <clears throat> I don't know if you can see the bottom here, but this is a, you know, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, right? That's what we have here. Of course, this is something that you would ha maybe have the kids do in Sunday school or something like this. But you know, when you just first uh, see this, let's see, back up here. Oops. There we go. No, that's not where I went. There. <laughs> that's not as easy to make out as this, right? So that, that's, the, that's the point. As it says in the New Testament, God's program has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's been revealed. It's been brought to light. We see now clearly, 2 Timothy 1.10. Well, once you connect the dots, the truth is now plain to see. And this was the point that Jesus made with his disciples on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection. Notice the dots that he's connecting. I'd love to sat in on this class. But uh, then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. The prophets laid it out there. And you've been very slow to pick up on it. And then he said, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? 
and beginning at Moses. Where's that? Well, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses wrote the first five books. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets. He connected the dots. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Isn't that profound? Let's connect the dots. He connected all those dots. See, this is me. See. C.I. Schofield. Yeah. Uh, The Lord, he says, this is a great quote. I love this quote. The Lord gave them the great key to the understanding of Scripture, that he himself is its subject, and that in him the entire book finds its unity. I love that quote. It's all about Jesus. Well, that brings us to our Messianic Psalm tonight. We might outline it this way. David's appeal to God to deal with his enemies. And he begins with the plea, just generally the plea in verses 1 through 3, and then in verses 4 through 10, an imprecatory prayer for help. Verses 11 through 18, a cry against malicious witnesses. And then to round out the chapter 19 through 28, a call for justice. Well, it's within the context of David's experience that the greater David, the Messiah, could identify in his experience as well. And so let's pick it up there. Chapter 35, verse 1. Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. So David begins by asking God to plead his cause, which is to say he wants God to contend for him. He wants God to defend him and to intervene decisively for him. And really, he speaks in very graphic terms as he wants God to fight or wage war against these enemies on his behalf. Now, we don't know the actual occasion when David wrote this psalm, but many of the commentators suspect, and they think very possibly, it was written when David was on the run from Saul. And the bad actors that David is speaking about may not have been Saul directly, Because in other places, he often has great regard for the fact that Saul was the Lord's anointed, and therefore he was very hesitant to act or speak against him. More likely, therefore, this has David's peers in view, that at one time were his friends when he too served in Saul's army. But now they have aligned viciously against him. And this had serious implications. Because at this point, it was clear that God had Samuel anoint David to be the next king. So those opposed to David, as this, and this was pretty well known, broadly known, uh, so those opposed to David were therefore really opposed to the will of God. I mean, when you're trying to take down the one that the prophet has anointed to be the next king, that becomes a serious matter. And it's from this vantage point that David speaks. And so with that background, we come to verses 4 through 10. We have an imprecatory prayer for help. Now, an imprecatory prayer is one in which request is made for curses or destruction to come down upon one's enemy. Uh, Now, David, more than any other scriptural writer, is associated with imprecatory prayers. Again, he speaks as God's anointed at this point. 
in keeping with what is in keeping with righteousness. Go to the end of the chapter. You're in chapter 35. Go down to the end here where he says, verse 27, Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. So he's speaking in in the context of one who has a righteous cause. And let them say continually, let, let the Lord be magnified as God comes to his help and God takes down his enemies. And then he says in verse 28, And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. So this is indeed in keeping with righteousness, what he is asking God to do. Uh, in terms of imprecatory prayers, gotquestions.org says this, These prayers were written not so much to exact revenge upon one's enemies, but rather to emphasize God's abhorrence of evil, his sovereignty over all mankind, and his divine protection of his chosen people. Many of these prayers were prophetic and could be seen taking place later in the New Testament in actual historic events. In the New Testament, Jesus exhorts us to pray for our enemies, but praying for their death or for bad things to happen to them isn't what he meant. Instead, we are to pray for their salvation first and foremost, and then for God's will to be done. If a personal wrong has been done to us, we seek God in prayer about it. And then we leave room for God's judgment and trust him to do what is best. I like that last line. We give space. Okay, vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's not up for us to do. And, and, and of course, we are praying that ultimately they would come to know the Lord if they don't know the Lord. But note the imprecatory nature of this uh, praying here as we go in verses 4 through 10. Verse 4, Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind, and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery, and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. Again, Psalm 35 is considered the first of the imprecatory psalms. And the best way to understand the imprecatory psalms is that David, from a position of righteousness is asking God to deal with his enemies. It assumes he's in the position of righteousness and is being sinfully abused. And so he's asking God to right the situation. In that position, David was not bashful about asking God to intervene, and that in a very destructive way. But note, this is only after they have completely betrayed David's love. As we will see, In a few verses. Now, the angel of the Lord is thought to be the pre incarnate Christ, appearing in the form of an angel. This designation is found three times in the Psalms. We saw it in chapter 34, verse 7, and then we see it here in chapter 35, in verses 5 and 6. Never after the incarnation does the angel of the Lord again make an appearance. Now, Christ is forever in the form of a man. Therefore, he never appears in the form of an angel after the incarnation. Now he's the God-man. And so because of this, many believe that Christ was probably, when it talks about the angel of the Lord, it was probably the pre-incarnate Christ. Back in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord speaks as God, identifies himself as God, and exercises the prerogatives of God. Well, in effect, David appeals to God as the hound of heaven, if you will. 
to hunt down his enemies. Did you catch that? Let the angel of the Lord chase them, verse 5. Let the angel of the Lord pursue them, verse 6. Hunt them down, God. Go after them. And David knows that with God after them, they won't get away with what they are doing. That's the essence of this imprecatory prayer. Verse 7, For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. Here is the heart of the matter. David has not done anything to deserve this evil attack, and yet they're all about it. Note that twice in this verse, he says, without cause. They are trying to take him out. They had no justifiable reason for doing it. And this is the key issue in this psalm and the trigger for the imprecatory nature of it. Verse 8, let destruction come upon him unexpectedly. And let his net that he has hidden catch himself. Might backfire on him. Into that very destruction let him fall. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord who is like you. Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. So David asks for God's dramatic intervention. And in anticipation of it, he says that he will rejoice in God's deliverance. David gives praise to God, saying, Lord, who is like you? As he delivers the vulnerable from those who are too strong for him. God is a God of deliverance for those who trust in him. And David loves this about God and praises him for it. Well, then in verses 11 through 18, we see the nature of what's going on behind the scenes. We have a cry against malicious witnesses. Verse 11, fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting. And my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend. Or brother, I bow down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. I mean, he's so broken in terms of what they were going through that it was as if he was mourning for his mother. I mean, he felt deeply for them. So David here shed some light on the level of treachery involved here. I mean, this is some serious treachery. These are malicious false witnesses that make accusations that are totally unfounded to where he doesn't even know what they're talking about. This level of evil is so high-octane that only God can really do something about it. They repay evil for good. They say evil for evil is man-like, good for evil is God-like, but evil for good is devil-like. Appropriately, the word devil means slander. This is the devil's work. And as David says, it is a sorrow to his soul. Now, when he says the word sorrow, it's really like, it's a deep word, like like you would use in bereavement. Like you are broken when somebody dies. In fact, the New American Standard translates this to the bereavement of my soul. 
This goes deep. In contrast to their malicious spirit, when they were sick, David intensely prayed for them with fasting, put on sackcloth. He was miserable because of what they were going through. He paced about as he considered them as a close friend or a brother. He didn't have any rest about the situation. Boy, this is terrible what they're going through. He was so concerned that he mourned as one mourns for their mother who has died. David felt really close to these people. Whoever they were, at one point, David really felt close to them. He really cared about them. William MacDonald says this. To understand the psalmist's deep, deep emotional involvement, we must realize that these people, who are now testifying against him, were once his friends. Now they malign him and accuse him of things of which he has no knowledge. For all the kindness he has shown to them, he is getting paid with hatred. Well, this explains a lot of things. It explains why this hurt David so very deeply and why he speaks in such tremendously strong emotional terms. There is no wound so deep as that which betrayal of trust inflicts. When one has put their heart into the life of another person and they stomp on that loyal friendship with malicious betrayal, that, my friends, hurts. And some of you, maybe most of you, have been through this kind of thing. Not fun. Really, such friends are no different than an enemy. And in fact, they are the worst sort of enemies. I mean, with friends like this, who needs enemies, right? That old line, that's true. Now, Warren Wiersbe uh, says this at this point. Those that criticize David for his imprecatory cursing prayer in verses 4 through 8 should remember that first he prayed for their help and healing. Yeah. (laughs) It's not just like, you know, there's a context here. Verse 15. But in my adversity, they rejoiced. What a contrast between how David responded when they were going through a hard time. Now, in my adversity, they rejoiced and gathered together. They're all coming together. You know, we got something on David. Attackers gathered Against me. And I did not know it. I mean, they're doing this kind of in secret, behind the scenes, gathering together. I think we got something. David doesn't even know what they're talking about. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. Now, when a person is going through an experience like this, it seems like it will never end. And it's so human to cry out, Lord, how long will you look on and plea for deliverance? Andrew Brunson was held imprisoned in Turkey for his Christian faith for an extended period of time, a number of years. The Turkish government was threatening him with three life sentences. How's that for hanging something over your head? Three life sentences. And he speaks about how long every day in that context seemed to be. At one point, he wrote this to his wife. 
This sentence keeps resonating in my mind as I go through the daily, sometimes hourly struggle of submitting myself beyond that of intentionally embracing whatever God's plans are that have allowed for ongoing imprisonment. Shall I not drink the cup? I want to drink the cup faithfully to the dregs. But then I also say, Lord, I've been drinking this cup for close to two years. How much longer? But may I be faithful to the end. May I be willing to drink the cup, continue drinking it. How could I do otherwise? I want to be an obedient son. We see the humanness here, even in the most committed of God's children. When we are going through a very difficult time, we long for relief. We want to be obedient in our endurance. And yet in our humanness, we cry out, how much longer? Ironically, Andrew Brunson then writes, this was the last letter I wrote in prison, totally unaware that the very next day I would be released to house arrest. Wow! What a deal! Very next day. This kind of reminds us of Psalm 31, 15, where David says, my times are in your hand. God providentially controls the kind of trial and the length of the trial. He is God and he is in control. We are human and it is challenging to trust him day by day, hour by hour, when it seems like this is going to never end. How long, O Lord? One of the hardest things in life to deal with is those who once claimed to be friends, but now who maliciously attack you, especially if they are in a power position of strength, as it would seem. David, in calling them lions, sees them in a position of strength. I mean, the lion is the, the king of the jungle, the king of beasts. As those aligned with Saul, if that was indeed the context, which many think it very possibly and probably maybe even was, they were in the predator position of strength as they viciously stalked David. And so David pleads for divine intervention. Verse 18, I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. Once again, David in faith anticipates deliverance. And then praising God publicly in the context of the assembly of worshipers. Verses 19 through 28, a call for justice. It's in this context of malicious betrayal by those previously thought to be his friends that we come to verse 19 that contains a messianic prophecy. Verse 19, let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies. Nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. So once again, David speaks of those who wrongfully are his enemies and who hate him without a cause. This was so very hurtful. He repeats it three times in this psalm. It was this type of deep hurt that Jesus, the Messiah, also experienced as this very truth is applied by him to him in the New Testament. In John chapter 15, verse 24, 25, Jesus speaking, If I had not done among them which, the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. 
that this happened, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. What types of works did Jesus do that they saw? Well, yes, they saw unparalleled miraculous works, but beyond that, this overwhelming show of miraculous power was, drumroll, benevolent, and constantly for the good of the people. Jesus constantly healed and delivered people. What's not to love about that? Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good. Why do you hate me? For, for what good thing? Went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. In spite of all the good that Jesus constantly went about doing by the power of the Holy Spirit, yet he was hated. That's devil-like, I'm telling you. How do you hate this guy? Everything he does is good. Thus he was hated for no good reason. He was hated without a legitimate cause. And when you haven't done anything wrong, and indeed have done nothing but good for people, and they hate you anyway, that's really tough. And that was Jesus' experience. It is in this very same context in John 15 that Jesus says that just as the world hated him, it will hate us. When you are abused, persecuted, and slandered for no good reason, then remember that this was also Christ's experience. They too hated him without a cause. This is the lot of those who follow Christ. This is the devil's work. And it's very challenging. Now we can expect that in depravity, the world will slanderously abuse us for no good reason. In fact, they will do it in spite of the good that we seek to do for them. They are a ruthless, thankless bunch who have as their father the devil. Footnote here, uh, this same reference in Psalm 35:19 about being hated without cause is also found in Psalm 69:4, which is also a messianic psalm. So we are not sure which reference Christ was referring to, but since they are the same, either or both could apply. Verse 20. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. Note that in contrast to peace, that is, well-being, they speak deceit in an effort to destroy David. The quiet ones in the land were, were David and his supporters, they, who were not causing any trouble. They were the quiet ones. They just wanted to live in peace in the will of God. But these deceitful ones... They were the troublemakers stirring everything up, trying to destroy him, contrary to what the prophet Samuel had indicated. Verse 21, they also opened their mouth wide against me and said, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. Aha is the sneer of contempt and ridicule as they make their false accusations. They claim to have the dirt on David. 
But it's all a lie. They claim to have seen it. We've seen it. But David takes refuge in the truth that God sees all and he knows the truth. And so he again appeals to God, verse 22. This you have seen, O Lord. <laughs> you catch that, verse 21? They say, our eyes have seen it. David says, this you have seen, O Lord. Do not keep silence. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication, to my cause, my God and my Lord. David here refers to God as my God and my Lord. God is literally Elohim and Lord is Adonai. Elohim acknowledges God as the most high supreme being. Adonai means master in the sense of the one who is sovereignly in control. Thus, in effect, David here calls God his supreme being and his sovereign master. Notice what he asks, verse 24. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, their hearts, ah, so we would have it. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. We've devoured him. We have him. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. Once again, at the end of David's request for vindication, he anticipates God coming to his rescue and then praising God with the congregation of God's people. And so he ends the psalm, verse 27, 28. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Well, in Psalm 35, we have a threefold elaboration of David's petition to the divine judge, each concluding with a vow to praise God for how he answers. So note at the end of each of these three sections that we talked about in the outline, my soul shall be joyful in the Lord, it shall rejoice in his salvation, verse 9. Verse 18, I will give you thanks in the great assembly, I will praise you among many people. And verse 28, my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Well, some of the hardest times in life come from those who wish to do us harm for no good reason. Dave Breeze used to say, it's a kind of dumb line, but I never forgot it. He'd say, it's a good day if somebody doesn't poke you in the eye with a stick. <laughs> you know, I kind of understood what he meant, right? I mean, he said, well, I got through the day. Nobody poked me in the eye with a stick. That's a good day. J. Vernon McGee. You know, J. Vernon McGee, you know, very kind of human. He said, I want to speak frankly. I have turned several people over to the Lord when I wanted, what I wanted to do was smack them in the mouth. He says, there's no use beating around the bush. I have those feelings sometimes. <laughs> Love the honesty, huh? Love the honesty. Being human, we all have those kind of feelings sometimes, like to hmm, deal with that person. But as God's people, we need to wait on the Lord and give such, such situations over to Him. And sometimes casting all of our cares upon the Lord means we just give these people over to the Lord. He knows how to deal with it. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. 
It's not up for me to get even. The Lord will repay. What we must do is not play God, but turn it over to him. He's a whole lot better at handling these situations than we are. And in the midst of being wrongly slandered and rewarded evil for good, let us remember this was the treatment that our Lord endured too. Only on a greater level than we will ever know. He too was hated without a cause. In this, Jesus is our ultimate example. God help us to emulate him. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, speaking of Christ, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And then Peter says, as he goes into chapter 4, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Well, the end goal for us as believers, as David says in Psalm 35, 27, let the Lord be magnified. In the end, it's all about him and God being glorified in whatever we go through and whatever he brings us through. Indeed, may our prayer be, may the Lord be magnified. Let's have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer.